0: Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of The Two View, the cutting-edge, interactive, and informative podcast for EM nurse practitioners and PAs. I'm Martha Roberts, and I'm a practicing EDNP and assistant professor in Northern California. I'm here today with my co-host, fact-checker, tear-jerker, tear-wiper, homeboy and guiding light, Michael Sharma, PA.
1: You know, tear-jerker implies that I cause people to cry. Beyond my four-year-old, that's actually quite rare. Thanks, homegirl. I am Michael Sharma. I'm a practicing emergency medicine Urgent Care PA and adjunct professor of PA studies.
0: So, Mike, I added this in last minute, and I just kind of wanted to talk about it for a second. It's a letter I received okay. from my insurance company.
1: Oh, now, oh I want to hear about this. Uh, I've been fighting insurance for the past few months for stuff on my end as well. Uh, it's it's kind of bonkers how hard it is for people with medical educations to get insurance companies to do stuff. So, uh, you know, typical insuring stuff like they're supposed to. I have no idea how lay people seem to manage it.
0: I know it's been pretty frustrating, and you've heard me mention these types of letters before. We, just, you could hear them on our previous podcasts. But this one hits home as to why our emergency departments are absolutely flooded with patients. And, you know, I thought I understood it before, but now I really truly understand it. And I've gone through these things myself being the patient and understanding how difficult it can be. But I did my due diligence and I am still having a really hard time as an outpatient. So I Hmm. went I went to my PCP about nine months ago with some arm pain, which I knew was lateral epicondylitis. She sent me to the orthopedic. That took a little bit of time i needed to get some x-rays and then i saw the orthopedic he wanted me to do the armband which i had already tried and failed you know and it's the other things that we do for lateral epicondylitis but in the end sure you know i really needed this steroid injection and he said that well we have to make sure that insurance uh, approves it now f- certainly you can pay out of pocket for these things but they're expensive so um just just for uh purposes, I wanted to let you know the, of costs. A uh, Kenalog or a, a small bottle of reconstitutable uh, steroid that you want to give to anybody, you know, that you mix with mm-hmm. a little lidocaine, it can be anywhere from $40 to $4,000. It really depends what? on the... I know. Depends on the manufacturer, how much, and what it's actually being used for. Now, that's a whole nother show in itself, but back to the letter... Um, I thought, well, maybe I'll just pay out of pocket, but the letter is asking for my physician to send the following things before I'm approved. It says, Dear Dr. H., we're reviewing these medical records to complete the prepayment review for the claim submitted for Martha Roberts. The information from the review will help us determine eligible expenses under the patient's healthcare plan and help okay. ensure that the claim processing is accurate. But it's hmm. seven pages, Mike. They want seven <laughs> pages of information about why they need to give me a steroid injection for my diagnosed lateral epicondylitis. Wow. It's frustrating because I felt like the doctor's workup, treatment and diagnosis was the justification, right? That is the yeah. d- justification, but they want lots of things, all the records, all I won't get into the whole list, but it okay. was it was infuriating and I felt really sad too because I have lateral epicondylitis and my arm hurts and all I want is a shot. <laughs>
1: You know, I did warn you that maybe competitive arm wrestling was not the sport for you, but you went ahead and uh, went into it anyways, you know. So you kind of get what you get, you know. Going
0: to have to go Uh, on hiatus.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're really going to miss you out on tour this year. That's a real shame. So the next time
0: someone shows up to the emergency department asking for, quote, that shot they give for tennis elbow, you can feel their pain. (laughs)
1: Yeah, seriously. Gosh. yeah. I I wish I could say that there was some sort of system of that would self-regulate here. Uh, I'm not confident that the existing system can or even wants to self-regulate unless they think that that self-regulation will net them more insurance company profits. (sighs) Well, uh, we can't fix that necessarily, but here's something we can fix pediatric emergency medicine if you've ever wanted to go big on little people there's something new for you an all new course that's all about the shorties september 12th through 14th at the iconic caesar's palace in las vegas the course is called mastering pediatric emergencies you know that it's this time of year right now as you're listening to start blocking off your september schedule and this will be the first and last time this year 2023, that pediatric emergency medicine course goes down. So, you're not going to want to miss this opportunity. We have a fantastic faculty of instructors who are acclaimed throughout the world of clinical pediatric emergency medicine and medical education, led by Emily Rose, MD. These are totally new lectures. You've never heard this material before. It's going to be a real treat again. That's September 12th through 14th in Las Vegas. We'd love to see you there. Martha, you're going to be there. Is that right?
0: That's right. hosting the event and I'm going to be your MC. we're going to have a really great time it's going to be a ton of fun and as Mike mentioned these are never be- before heard lectures all in one place so this is a brand new designed uh, fully evidence-based practice current guideline assembly of specialists and um, Emily Rose is amazing I'll is going to be there as well we've got yeah. some some really great faculty
1: all right, yeah, I was looking through some of the topics and I was really interested in, in, in checking this thing out. Well, it's time for our first segment, The Wet Read, where Martha and I get 60 quick seconds to talk about something that caught our eye. The CDC is investigating an uptick in pediatric brain abscesses that started late last year. Much like the invasive group A strep infections that uh, rose up and we reported on episode 23, there was a large peak in incidence of brain abscesses, which is still a relatively rare infection during winter of 2022-23. The textbook triad of brain abscess is headache, altered mental status, and focal neurological changes, but this doesn't even occur in 50% of patients. However, in most patients with brain abscesses, here's what to look for. There is some sort of an ENT infection that uh, presents to your practice late. So it's been already going on for a while, or maybe it was initially treated with something and resisted treated, didn't get better, or some immunosuppression. So look out for those things in your patients. I've been involved in the care of some young patients with intracranial badness, different varieties and thankfully the patients kind of made it easy on me with some report of unusual behavior, seizure-like behavior, gait issues, lethargy. I've been rewarded multiple times for rejecting the instinct to say, this kid looks fine while they're laying in bed. Cause you know, most kids look okay when they're laying in bed. I, I, you know, when I examined or worked up the unusual behavior further, uh, it was rewarding to me and, and most importantly for the patient. So um, resist that urge. If you hear about something funny going on, ask one more question, do one more physical exam test and see where that takes you.
0: Yeah, that's actually really great insight. I got a medical uh, legal case from Medical Malpractice Insights, MMI, Mm. which is an absolutely fantastic email that everyone should subscribe to um, of a young male with a brain abscess. And the website is called Medical Malpractice Insights. So you probably can guess what kind of outcome this poor... Man had. I think it highlights a lot of great points when it comes to parts of the history and lab results that should catch your attention and some things to consider when it comes to what you should be examining when you hear about potential brain related symptoms. Cool. Yeah. So I want to move on, Mike. and always a hot topic in the ER. We have spoken about this before, the yes-nos, what to do or not to do in the ER. This is often that quick yes-no segment that we do in our courses. <laughs> and when we are running out of t- a time, Diane will say, is this a yes or a no? And of course, Ken Milne will always be like, well, but, and go into a big, <laughs> right. long diatribe, as much as we love him. But um, I would like, you know, to give us a quick yes, no, or should we, or should we not do some of these things? I wanted to bring this alive in our podcast this month in the spirit cool. of going to be at boot camp in July. Yeah, nice. So oftentimes, patients come in with requests to have medications refilled or ask for a single dose. Now, we've covered this before, but I want to get into some specific medications for yes, no. And I'm going to vote on overall yes for medication refills. Okay. Um Overall, yes, Uh, no, but yes, okay, today. So no, not every day kind of thing. So simple stuff, things patients have taken for years, months, whatever. To me, it really doesn't matter unless it's um, something that is really strange or hasn't been filled in a while. I I don't question it too much. I will even give a dose of methadone, opioids, or benzos. It's a 24 to 48-hour yes to me at least. Okay. So these are typically the rules for methadone, okay? If you miss your window dose, uh, i.e. should have showed up, but you didn't, you should give these patients their usual confirmed dose if possible. Otherwise, studies have supported that if they don't get it, they're going to behave in even riskier behaviors like, you know, using on the street heroin, snorting, something else. So don't underestimate the power of addiction, And program management. So give them their dose so that they don't divert or misuse or even overdose and die. And that definitely happens. Um, Some in house pharmacies, though, do have a cap for these drug dosing. So, especially methadone. For example, my hospital will give you 40 milligrams of methadone on off hours between 5 p.m. and 6 a.m. They will allow you to give that dose and only that dose, regardless or lower. Let's say, like, you know, they're on 20 milligrams of methadone, which is rare, but. Um, you'll have to confirm it. And it's very difficult to confirm the dose, although you can use your local opioid search engine for the prescription drug monitoring. Just look up the patient, their date of birth, the dose, and if you forgot your username and password, it can be reset in about five minutes, or you can ask an attending physician to to help you out um, and use their account together, and you guys can discuss what you want to do. You can also confirm the dosing by accessing the patient's chart, an epic record for example, in um, the EMR, a lot of these are tied to our hospitals. So remember, even if people on methadone, um, you know, everybody screws up. They're trying to to fix their life. So um, I don't know. Give them a break a little bit, Mike.
1: Mm.
0: Okay. Yep. Yeah. As far as benzos go, I would say sure. Five tablets of Ativan or Valium, no big deal. Ninety tabs with a three card refill, I don't <laughs> think so. Right. right. Um, things that you absolutely should uh, refill yeses to me are antihypertensive SSRIs metformin thyroid medication even ointments for chronic rashes like psoriasis or fungal infections and hey if it helps throw in a work note to allow them to get whatever it is that they have to get taken care of so that their life can get back on track very very powerful um, ability that we hold as see our clinicians and remember you'd want the same for your friend your family member or gosh darn it for yourself so big fan on yes 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 eye drops for glaucoma to prevent prevent high pressures even ADHD medications when they're not on shortage (laughs) Mm. uh, for kids who have been on them for years so um, yeah be aware be aware that weird stuff Like I told you, you know, patients that just got started on HIV meds, antibiotics, names of drugs you've never heard of, things from Mexico um, or other (laughs) countries that have just come over, levels may be needed for seizure medications. So yeah, use your due diligence and your brain. um, And I think that that will uh, behoove everybody.
1: Okay, so it sounds like your answer is yes, but... (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. I I have to say my answer is no, but... (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. In general, my personal guideline is when there is a higher risk of the patient suffering an organic medical issue by me not prescribing the medication, then I should consider prescribing the medication. That's my, that's my general guideline. And it goes beyond whether me prescribing it is going to vaguely help them or not. Uh, in the end, if I'm giving them a benzo, I'm going to give something long-acting like chloridized or Librium with the goal of preventing withdrawal. And not necessarily matching the effect of their their usual benzo. I, I will defer to you on the methadone thing. I have no doubt you see a lot of those patients at San Fran. Um, I do also share concerns, like you mentioned. I I don't want someone to fall back into their bad habits, right? If this is keeping them. From abusing, then yeah, I don't want them to fall back into that. Uh, I totally agree about being wary about a lot of these specialist initiated medications of weirder stuff, to include uh, what we just talked about, right? The intraarticular steroid injection. You know, steroid injections into joints are not totally benign. There is some variety from orthopedists about how often someone should get steroids into a joint. There are zero emergencies in which inject steroids into the joint, are the immediate life or limb saving intervention indicated. So uh, a hard pass on that for me in the ER. I have a pretty short list, frankly, of medications I feel are appropriate for us to refill. I'm totally okay with like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, glaucoma management refills if they've been on them recently. There's probably more, but in the end, the potential for organic medical emergency with me not refilling is my guiding principle. There is one tactic I will use in the not unusual situation of Quote, I need a refill of this medication, but I don't know X, where X is the dosing instructions, the strength of the medication. Heck, sometimes even the name of the medication itself, the patient's like, ah, it starts with, uh, rhymes with, it's a little pill. It's like, yes, they're, they're all little pills generally. I'll write on the prescription or in the discharge instructions and, of course, tell the patient that the patient and the pharmacy have to verify the previous dose or medication or unknown information somehow. The patient needs to bring in the bottle or they got to contact an old pharmacy something to verify the prescription. And if the old prescription doesn't jive with the new prescription, have the pharmacy call us back and we can fix it and make sure they get on the right thing. So there's there's ways, uh, ways for these people to communicate back to us after they've been discharged.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to move on to segment two. This is our dry scan where we penetrate a little deeper into two other topics. Mike, Mike, I want you to start with yours.
1: (laughs) Oh, nuts. It's time to talk testicles, specifically testicular torsion. This problem falls into one of my favorite broad categories of emergency medicine problems. Problems where time is of the essence and a strong clinical call based on history and physical can save the day. The textbook presentation of testicular torsion is an acute, severe testicular pain, often accompanied by vomiting, with an ultrasound suggesting a lack of blood flow to that testicle. Unfortunately, Testicles don't read textbooks. A single-center retrospective chart review of about 200 pediatric torsion cases between 2011 and 2020, uh, 2020, rather, in Lithuania, was published at the end of 2022 and identified some trends that significantly increased the odds ratio of someone eventually being diagnosed with a torsion. From highest to lowest, the authors noted that age greater than 13 years, onset of pain less than five hours, a hard testis on exam, vomiting, scrotal edema, and abdominal pain as factors that increase the likelihood of a patient having torsion, with the first factor I mentioned, age greater than 13 years, having an odds ratio of 8.4. Wow. Also of note, 41.7% of patients eventually diagnosed with torsion in this study had blood flow observed, patent blood flow through to the testicle in question. Ultimately, you cannot hang your hat on diagnostics here. As you know, viability of the testicle is thought to drop significantly after six hours of torsion. So like, what do you do Hmm. when a patient with torsion shows up after gutting it out for five hours? We've heard of the the open-the-book procedure where you use your hands and externally rotate the testicles, as it's thought that most testicles twist inward, with the goal of restoring some blood flow. It's a little more complicated than that, though. It's thought that up to one-third of testicles twist outward. The edema and severe pain involved can also make things uncertain when you're down there and trying to decide which way to go. A letter to the journal Pediatric Emergency Care suggests a tweak to the technique. The authors offer a few case reports that suggest that applying inferior traction, inferior traction, stretching the spermatic cord to its maximum length can sometimes cause the testicles to naturally untwist in the direction that releases tension. And then you can manually continue that untwisting. This isn't validated or anything, but mechanically it makes sense and it's unlikely to cause any additional harm in a situation where time equals tissue. Obviously, some strong analgesia before employing this traction technique would be helpful for all involved. In case, I'm sure Shorzy would be proud if you give this a try. (laughs) Shorzy.
0: Do you know Shorzy? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, and actually... (laughs) That's one of my partner's favorite shows, too. So uh, it, uh, it'll be, what does he say? I can't do it. Um, Good. Go, well,
1: <laughs> I don't think he want to do it on the podcast.
0: No, never mind. <laughs> Forget it. Okay. So, that for Jason. Yes. So there's a note here that states I need to talk torsion, all right? So by torsion, yes, okay, you've already talked torsion. I want to talk about CT ultrasound and ovarian torsion. And this may be super old news to many of you, but there have been some back and forth studies since the 2013 study in the European Journal of Radiology. And we all know undifferentiated abdominal pain in females can be tricky, even for the well-practiced clinician on site. I'm talking about the head-to-head study on CT versus ultrasound in the ER to diagnose ovarian torsion in females with lower abdominal pain and pelvic pain. The bottom line is that the negative predictive value of a normal CT um, uh, is about 99% regarding ovarian torsion if you have a positive CT scan abdomen pelvis CT scan with radiological findings of torsion you can forego the transvaginal ultrasound in fact in this paper the abdomen pelvis CT demonstrated a sensitivity of 90 to 100 percent and specificity of 85 to 90 percent importantly a CT demonstrating normal ovaries effectively excluded ovarian torsion. Huh. Mm-hmm. So the conclusion here, the diagnostic performance of CT, um, it's not much different from that of ultrasound. But basically here what they're trying to say is that if you went ahead and got that set the CT done, you don't need to go ahead and get an ultrasound to confirm your diagnosis. Which, by the way, some people... Eh, I hate to say I've seen them do Um, so if you're I
1: totally do this yeah like I totally will say like oh I'm so concerned I'm gonna get an ultrasound but this is this is seriously news to me
0: Oh, okay. Well, actually, it's a really, that was a really good paper that um, I had referenced. It'll be in our liner notes. If you're more concerned about ovarian torsion and you decide to opt for the CT, a follow up ultrasound is not necessary, Mike, to rule out this torsion. Just just so you know. And okay. then the CT will also show you a lot more as we know, then the yep. ultrasound, if your physical exam workup in history is not 100% exclusive for the diagnosis of torsion, hence our undifferentiated abdominal pain workup and plan. Now, a lot of people lose their minds trying to figure out, you know, I see new graduates do this a lot. Oh my God, they have lower belly pain. I have to do a thousand things. It's not true. I mean, there are definitely signs and symptoms that are classic of Uh, certain diseases and illnesses. But there really truly are patients with undifferentiated abdominal pain that are telling you things subjectively that you're like, wow, that doesn't make any sense with what I'm finding. Um, Okay. And then you have to think to yourself, well, the patient is telling me that they have excruciating pain in the right lower quadrant, but they're also vaginally bleeding. And I could go on with you know multiple complaints that patients have that make us sort of think, well, could be appendicitis, but, or is this just a really, you know, um, bad period or is this a uh, ectopic or, you know, I could, I could go on. Anyway, there of course are pros and cons of using unnecessary radiation on a patient. I'm not saying that we should just jump to the CT if we're thinking that there's torsion. Um, of course, ultrasound can still tell us if there's torsion, but I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, basically, if you're ruling out other nefarious lower pelvic pain issues in a female, which uh, don't just include torsion. Moving to a CT may be necessary, but we might consider uh, the exam and history a lot more and then be very cautious about adding the CT in young females, Um, maybe even getting the attending uh, physician involved, sometimes that can be helpful. The best bet is to know your hospital protocols and your consultants, so it's very rare that when I feel confused about something that i can't call a specialist right mm-hmm. like they they love to say well tell me the history let's talk about the tests you want to do In a particular case, if torsion is your only and main concern given the examined history, transvaginal ultrasound with grayscale imaging and Doppler flow is usually the diagnostic modality of choice for detecting torsion. But it has high specificity and poor sensitivity. So ultrasound revealing torsion will have the color Doppler show decreased or absent intraovarian venous flow as the ovary is torsing. And then the late stage showing no arterial flow as this progresses to be worse. The issue is that the, um, the reliance on this normal arterial flow to exclude torsion, uh, the ovaries have dual blood flow and arterial inflow is not really compromised until late courses of the issue. In fact, according to a recent publication, Cited with numerous references in the 2020 ASEP now, arterial flow is completely normal in more than 25% of patients with surgery-confirmed torsion. Ah, Hmm. Ah, uh. also note intermittent or partial torsion may also uh, result in normal venous flow on the ultrasound. So this is a little rough game that we have, right? The authors of this publication state that they do not rely on normal vascular flow to rule out ovarian torsion. A combination of the transvaginal ultrasound findings such as ovarian enlargement and mass, free fluid in the pelvis, and vascular flow may improve your ability to diagnose ovarian torsion. And Mike, lastly here, what we're, what's also interesting from the authors from this ASAP Now publication is they conclude that... If the ovary is abnormal on the CT, then getting um, the uh, transvaginal ultrasound isn't necessary to go on to confirm your diagnosis. But go ahead and consult the OBGYN. It's a time-sensitive condition, and they're going to help you figure out what the next step is if another test is indicated, which most times it's not. You can also check out ASEP or ACOG guidelines, which we'll put in our liner notes.
1: Yeah, and these liner notes are as always at twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number 2 view.fireside.fm. You'll put that in and you can do, you know, backslash or front slash, whichever, you know, one of the slashes, right? And then 27 is this episode. So twoview.fireside.fm. Well, it's time for our last segment, which we call Oral Contrast, where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a topic. And Martha, you picked this one. I think it's a great topic.
0: Yes. The acute psychiatric patient in the ER. Let's get right to the guidelines and then chat a little bit more about them. They can be found on ASEP's website.
1: And we'll have that link in the show notes as well. Yes.
0: So, Mike, number one. In the alert adult patient presenting to the emergency department with acute psychiatric symptoms, should routine laboratory tests be done or completed and used to identify contributory medical conditions, non-psychiatric disorders?
1: Okay, so the policy suggests that do not routinely order lab testing on patients with acute psychiatric syndromes. Use medical history, previous psychiatric diagnoses, and physical examination to guide testing. And I love this, you know, like the knee-jerk reaction on a lot of uh, hospitals is like, hey, this person has some psych issues, maybe they're getting admitted, we better uh, clear them for admission, right, which that usually means knee-jerk ordering a bunch of lab tests. But as we know, like it's not about what the lab, we're not treating the lab tests, we're treating the patient in front of us. So right. I love that ASAP backed up emergency clinicians uh, in this way.
0: Yes, very good. Number two, in the adult patient with new onset psychosis without focal neurological deficit, should brain imaging be obtained acutely?
1: Their response is, use individual assessment of risk factors to guide brain imaging in the emergency department for patients with new onset psychosis without focal neurological deficit. I guess their idea is that if there is something wrong with the brain, they won't just be having nuanced psychosis there should be some sort of deficit uh, you've probably had a mix of these where you've caught a person who everyone thought was acting spacey and they actually had some sort of intracranial lesion going I on. i just had one <laughs> oh, gosh okay that's terrifying i literally okay, we'll, just we'll, had one we'll talk about that one offline okay what's yeah. next
0: number three in the adult patient presenting to the emergency department with suicidal ideation can risk assessment tools in the emergency department identify those who are safe for discharge
1: This is interesting. In patients presenting to the ED with suicidal ideation, physicians should not use currently available risk assessment tools in isolation. To identify low-risk patients who are safe for discharge, the best approach to determine risk is an appropriate psychiatric assessment and good clinical judgment, taking patient, family, and community factors into account. Uh, the more the merrier, I guess. And yeah, uh, you know, just like we're not going to be treating the lab results necessarily, we shouldn't be treating these risk assessment tools. These tools are should be, uh, you know, used to guide us. Um, but they should not be the end-all be-all determining who's high and low risk. Yeah.
0: All right, and then lastly, number four, which we're gonna talk about a little bit more here to end the podcast. In the adult patient presenting to the emergency department with acute agitation, can ketamine be used safely and effectively?
1: Mm, Hmm, that's okay. uh, Ketamine is one option. That's what they say. One option for immediate sedation of the severely agitated patient who may be violent or aggressive. I know you wanna spend some time discussing this ketamine in detail for the treatment of acute psychosis or, uh, you know, it depends on who you ask, right? So hyperactive delirium, some folks call it excited delirium and we'll explain kind of where this tr- terminology has been kind of changed or adapted here shortly.
0: Yeah, so quick yes, no, Mike. <laughs> Number one in the uh, alert adult patient coming into the ER for psychiatric complaints do we get labs no number two if the patient has a new onset psychosis with um, without a focal neurological deficit should we get brain imaging nah uh, and in the adult patient with the SI uh, complaint should we risk assessment tool them um, only no you know it's a multitude of factors here that we use right and then lastly can you give ketamine sure Most definitely. Yeah. But my my short answer to treating the acute psych patient either violent or possibly is getting violent um, is to have a good go-to medication. And I often think about what what – so I like to just have my medication. I like to have my medication. I want to hold it. I want to cuddle it. (laughs) I want to know that it's there for me. And then the only thing that I want to think about is when not to use that. Any other time, it's like, take this, take this, take this. But when is it not okay to use it? What I mean here is that I use Ativan frequently for acute stress reactions, panic attacks, Um, even sometimes a a more vehicle crash in a patient where there's an acute mental trauma, no physical findings. Ativan is my go-to for lower acuity psych patients, one to two milligrams, um, especially the crying patient, you know, who maybe (laughs) did a few too many uh, hits of weed in the park. Um, that kind of thing. Um, Depending on weight intolerance, I don't use Ativan for patients who have a very high tolerance or who are on high doses of clonazepam or Valium. And I also don't use Ativan when the patient is in severe psychiatric crisis, okay? That's when I bring the big guns like ketamine
1: right Uh, i love that that thought process of have your go-to that you know you're going to do the time to think about that go-to is before you're confronted by the highly agitated patient that may even pose a danger to themselves or also fellow patients or staff you don't want to be thinking about that during the confrontation the asap guideline itself states quote ketamine is one option close quotes, for immediate sedation for a severely agitated patient who may be violent or aggressive. We also know that ketamine has been used for depression, acute depressive states for patients that present to the ER, even patients with suicidal thoughts. A low number of ER clinicians are going right to the diagnosis of acute depression and starting ketamine in in that ER visit. We understand that that's happening. What we want to highlight is that it doesn't matter what we're treating in the end. Regardless of what we're treating, we have to consider drug drug interactions before we jump right to the K button every single time. Psych patients may already be taking other medications or tend to to begin with that can interact with the ketamine.
0: Yeah, so um, we have a lot of uh, clinicians that are very astute and using ketamine. Like you said, right away they like they. They're jumping right into it for either depressive and SI states, like, okay, fine. Um, Maybe you're not 100% comfortable with that. And the literature is interesting. I mean, there's a lot of literature out there. But the big drawback to ketamine are drug-drug interactions. And our pharmacology department and our farm... um, People at the general, we talk about this frequently. And after looking at a 2021 meta-analysis, looking at 24 studies in the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology, I mean, could we be a better journal for this topic? They concluded the following in regards to drug-drug interactions with ketamine. For lithium, no significant interactions with ketamine were reported. Two out of the five studies for Lamictal indicated that the effects of ketamine were attenuated or reduced. Hmm. Benzodiazepines are repeatedly shown to reduce the duration of ketamine's antidepressant effect. And for the MAOIs, case reports showed no relevant change in vital signs during concurrent ketamine use. Okay. One paper indicated an interaction between ketamine and haloperidol, and two studies did not. Four papers investigated risperidone, including three neuroimaging studies showing an attenuating effect of risperidone on ketamine-induced brain perfusion changes, and clozapine significantly blunted ketamine-induced positive symptoms in patients with schizophrenia, but not in healthy participants. Oh One paper reported no effect of olanzapine on ketamine's acute um, psycho psycho t- Help me out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's psychotomimetic effects. Thank
0: you. So um, the conclusion from this meta-analysis was that current literature shows that benzodiazepines are probably um, a problem with ketamine. Lamictal can also reduce ketamine's treatment outcome. These things should be taken into account. These are drug-drug interactions we need to think about. And maybe we don't know if the patient is taking too little, too much, or not at all of these medications before giving ketamine. I think that the studies on ketamine are mixed in psych patients because of all the polypharmacy that patients may or may not, or we can't confirm, are on or are not on. When we give right. ketamine, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a very difficult, uh, drug. I think people are very quick to say ketamine, 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 but I, I just, I'm not on board a hundred percent with it.
1: Yeah. That's a lot to think about as an ER clinician, especially when someone is, uh, bearing down on you, you know, looking very upset and agitated. I, I think, you know, it's you really want to think about like, you know, it's it's one thing to like hear about ketamine and go, oh, I've heard ketamine is a good situ- thing to use in a situation. Uh, I think that um, you're really going to want to think long and hard about whether that is going to be your go to um, or whether you want to consult somebody um, who is more experienced in giving ketamine. Perhaps it's physicians, perhaps it's mental health NPs, or maybe it's the, the behavioral health team.
0: Why not call the toxicologist? I don't know about you, Mike, but maybe just because my fa my father was a toxicologist and there very there were very few toxicologists in the country for so long now yeah. we have a lot of them um, but Mike Hyun and, and Leslie Wolf, um, they're two toxicologists that I have on my speed dial and they love calls for me any hour of any day. Not, you know, um, sometimes I just talk about past cases and what they would have done, you know, if you were in the situation, but toxicologists, they love to weigh in. Maybe if you have a fellow, just tell them, be like, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this or I would love to talk to you more about ketamine. It, talk to a toxicologist, make one your friend. That's my... Message for the episode today, <laughs> but anyway, back to ketamine. If it be, is it an option for a patient who's ripping TVs off the wall and hitting staff and going crazy? A crazy Asep says sure, it's an option. Um, I just want to say briefly that the now archaic and should I say extinct term, excited delirium, um, as Jim rolls over in his box on my desk here. Um, <laughs> Yes, my father's ashes are right here. Um, You know, he was really into excited delirium uh, for many, many years. But now ASAP, they don't recognize that term. What they do recognize is that the existence of hyperactive delirium syndrome is uh, severe agitation, potentially life-threatening. It's a clinical condition characterized by a combination of vital signs that might be abnormal, like temperature, blood pressure. Also, um, this really pronounced agitation, altered mental status, and metabolic derangement is a big key here. So these patients are still at high risk for direct physical trauma, um, harm. Um, all kinds of other problems. ASEP does believe that this needs attention, certainly with all the cases that we've had in the news. Um, And they have a wonderful task force. Gosh, I went down this rabbit hole of task force by ASEP. These papers are fantastic. I mean, Mm. you know, read them. These, these people have put together an incredible group um, with the goal of treating patients with signs of hyperactive delirium syndrome and what to focus on by reducing stress and preventing physical harm when they present to the emergency department.
1: My personal quick reference on this topic of, of what to do when someone comes in there agitated is the work of Ruben Strayer. Uh, Ruben Strayer is an emergency physician who works in New York City, trained in Texas, like a, a lot of the good ones are, and writes at emupdates.com. He has a good kind of map, a flow chart on deciding what to use and when. And we have again got a link to that on our website twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number twoview.fireside.fm. His first decision point he uses is whether the patient is moderately agitated or severely agitated. And hyperactive delirium would fall into that severe agitation category. An easier way to think of what category they fall into is this. Is the patient an immediate danger to themselves or others? And things you could consider are whether they could have like a truly emergent medical condition, like a trauma that needs to be addressed, but patient factors are preventing that, and whether they cross the line between just disruptive and truly dangerous, combative, or otherwise just uncontrollable. Depending on the patient's suspected comorbidities and other medications on board, for your um, you know moderately agitated patient. He generally recommends my Dazzle Versed. Or some other first or or some sort of first generation antipsychotic, either haloperidol or one of our favorites on the podcast, droperidol, or sometimes a combination of both midazolam and one of those antipsychotics I just mentioned. Those first generation antipsychotics are known for being more sedating than the second generation ones, and that's kind of what we're going for here. He specifically recommends a different antipsychotic, olanzapine, when the patient is at high risk for long QT symptoms. like with methadone use we mentioned that earlier cardiac medications or multiple psych meds but for the patient who is uncontrollably violent or suspected to have an emergent medical condition requiring resuscitation he does recommend ketamine at the dissociative dose of four to six milligrams per kilogram intramuscularly so you know that's not the time to like try to get an iv when the patient's arm is thrashing around and and striking you in the face you could just remember five milligrams per kilogram if that makes it easier that would mean the average 100 kilogram person gets about 500 milligrams there you go so it's kind of easy math there's a lot of other good clinical pearls on his page about the agitated patient like how about injecting large volumes and through the clothes should be considered in patients with severe agitation like I just mentioned, and other things to help patients safely like removing those physical restraints, Martha, that you talked about, by using uh, oxygen face mask with the oxygen turned on and putting that over the mouth. You know, a lot of folks get concerned about people biting or spitting. These patients sometimes need oxygen and so, high flow oxygen through a mask over the mouth, it helps the patient and it's safer potentially for the staff as well. He gave a 26 minute talk on the topic on his website. We'll link to that emupdates.com, the specific page on his website with that talk. I thought it was amazing. Very funny, very hard hitting and very actionable information. One last thing I think is interesting is this. Nowhere in his recommendations does he mention diphenhydramine or benadryl i know the old b52 which stands for benadryl five of haloperidol and two of Lorazepam, is something that people have been doing this for a long time think of when it comes to the agitated patient we've got a link to the alien Blog, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, and it's a 2022 article that questions whether diphenhydramine is still indicated in the agitated patient. They suggest that it may not be necessary and that it may increase ED length of stay without added benefit. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want for an agitated patient is for him to stick around longer in my ED and maybe time to ditch the B52 and use this memory device instead. If the patient is uncontrollably violent and or needs emergent resuscitation, tire them out by making them run a 5k. That's ketamine, 5 milligrams per kilogram, the dissociative dose. Otherwise, consul- consider consulting 25 MDs. Like, what's wrong with this guy? I got to consult 25 MDs. That's midazolam, and droperidol with starting doses of two milligrams of midazolam and five of droperidol, five milligrams of droperidol. Think muscle and midazolam, m M&M. and it works quickly and reliably by the intramuscular route, perfect for someone who is not gonna want to sit still for IV access. Consider going higher, like five or 10 milligrams of midazolam in patients with some sort of sympathomimetic toxicity, that's like Coke or methamphetamines or ecstasy, or in patients in withdrawal from sedative hypnotic drugs like benzos, alcohol, or maybe even GHB. Also, if you don't have droperidol in your ED, I don't think I do, if you're substituting haloperidol or olanzapine, increase the starting dose of that medication by 50%. Lastly, it's important we get ahead of our patient. Understand that midazolam can cause respiratory depression. Get ready to manage respiratory depression if you're taking a patient down like this. Catch it with oximetry and even capnography if you have it. That's a a whole huge topic here, and it's fraught with (laughs) medical legal implications. It's fraught with, oh, my gosh, I just sedated this patient. Now I have to own them or sedate them. So um, I love what you said, Martha, is have a go-to and, and know when you wouldn't. But otherwise, right. go to the go-to.
0: Right. All right. Well, Mike, I got something sweet to end the podcast. You don't, but I have something for you.
1: <laughs> I'm sweet enough by myself. Do you
0: know Do you know what I have here in my hand?
1: Oh, yeah. Hey, Jappa.
0: Cool. Yeah. So I got something for you, and then I'll do mine. So um, this is actually kind of cool. Uh, I don't always read this. It's The Art of Medicine. It's the last page. Okay. Um. And it's actually an interesting little piece uh, by- Who wrote it,
1: by the way? Oh, sorry, you're going to say it.
0: Brian T. Mourer, M-A-U-R-E-R. Okay, cool. And he's a PA. And it's an interesting, it's a conversation. And, you know, I think it takes a special person to write a conversation piece between two people. And I think that this person did it in one page, very very well Um, it's basically documenting the conversation between a surgeon and a pediatric specialist and uh, I think it's really a testament here to how incredible pediatric providers are over the years particularly this one who's been practicing for 40 years because literally they could talk to any specialist And be like, yeah, I remember that patient when they were two, when they were five, when they were 10, Mm. when they were 18, when they were 25, still coming to me. And it's amazing, like, when I was growing up... um, my father would say, oh, it was a patient sent from Dr. Blah, blah, blah. And it was like, oh, everybody knew that one particular pediatric specialist. (laughs) You know, like, oh, like, we're so glad that that's so-and-so's patient because we know that that patient's been getting good care. But the last line in this, and I'll let you all take a look at it, um, it's the June edition, 2023, volume 36, number 6, last page 50. I really admire you guys who work in pediatrics, he says. You have got to have the skill set to treat a family as well as a child. Not everybody does. And he adds, you've also got to have the patience of, he goes on to talk about basically what it takes to to be in four decades of pediatric practice. So, yeah. um, patience and patience. So anyway, that's your I did your something sweet for you. Thanks. my, my something sweet is uh let's talk about Bobby or Bobby. What, how do you think he says his name? Is it Bobby?
1: B O B I sounds like Bobby.
0: Okay. I think it might be Bobby. You know, is it
1: Bobby? Bobby? Bobby.
0: It could be Bobby. This is a 31-year-old dog. Sorry. This is a 31-year-old dog that had allegedly been alive since 1992. Bubby was born May eleventh, 1992. He's a small, purebred, Rafiero de Alentejo dog. Cared for Leonel Costa de Conqueros in Liria, Portugal. Lir- Liria. Look, L-
1: I don't know what my problem Liria. is. Liria.
0: How do I... I
1: don't... Yeah, uh, uh, of Conqueros Liria, Portugal. Okay. Let's just say that. All right. Yeah.
0: So on, uh, like I said, on uh, May eleventh, nineteen ninety-two, the dog was born. So on May eleventh, two thousand twenty-three, Bobby turned thirty-one, and that makes him the oldest dog on record ever to live. So uh, his age of thirty-one surpasses the previous record held by Bluey. A female Australian cattle dog from Victoria, Australia, who was 29 and 5 months. And that was the oldest dog. Well, what can we learn from Bobby? Bobby. And did you know that there's a Wikipedia page dedicated just to him? The owners have stated that he's in reasonably good health for his age. And although he has trouble walking a little bit, and he's got bad eyesight overall, he's got good health. Um, He had a little bit of a uh, a trouble in 2018. um, But he got better. And they think that he is the way that he is because of the calm, peaceful environment in which he lives in, and the consumption of fresh foods, instead of kibble and also can be contributed to his genetics his mother lived to be 18 so in honor of his birthday they had 100 people come they had a big old party and they had fish and meat and they had a performance of dancers that sounds fun anyway um, we know that dogs can live long for a variety of re- uh, reasons chihuahuas actually live a really long time my friend's chihuahua uh, Becca Quo, her chihuahua lived to be 18 I knew that dog it went to school with us um, and <laughs> And a special shout-out to Dr. Rick Bucata who lost his little 11-year-old Benny a few weeks ago. And we know dogs are very special to their owners, but Benny was extremely special to Bucata and we're very sorry to hear that.
1: I bet Benny was a good dog, and I'm sure Bobby was as well. We have, again, uh, we have pictures. We have a link to Bobby running around in his native Portugal. We actually, I found um, Dr. Maurer's article when the past becomes present. From JAPA, uh, uh, June 2023. So I have links for those things on our website, twoview.fireside.fm. That's number twoview.fireside.fm.
0: So last month, we asked what famous American love goddess, actress, dancer, and performer died of Alzheimer's disease in 1987, and what famous movie showcased her as the femme fatale in her first major dramatic role. And the answer was Rita Hayworth, and the movie was Gilda. And the winner was Debbie McBride, a PMP from California. An actress, dancer, wonderful lady, 1940s top stars, appearing in over 61 films in over 37 years. The love goddess described Hayworth um, perfectly, and she became one of the most glamorous screen idols of the 1940s. And she was a top pinup girl for the GIs in World War II.
1: In 1980, Hayworth was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, which contributed to her death at age 68. The public disclosure and discussion of her illness drew attention to Alzheimer's, which was largely unknown by most people at the time and helped to increase public and private funding for Alzheimer's research, and we'll have more information about that on our website as well. Well, let's shift focus to our new question this month, and you're going to want to listen up because, hey, maybe you'll get um, dare I say it, a free course? Is that fair to say? No, 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 20%, 20%. Okay, all right. Hey, in this economy, folks, what are you gonna do, right? So 20% off a course if you answer this question, right? Here's the two-part question, uh, the two-part answer will be yours to provide. Ketamine can sedate humans as well as animals. However, there is one animal in which ketamine seems to produce excitatory effects. In which animal does ketamine seem to produce excitatory effects? And in which year was the paper published that detailed these findings?
0: <laughs> email your two-part answer. In addition to anyone you'd like to give a shout-out to, as well as any feedback from any episode or this episode, you can send that to the email address viewcast at gmail.com. That's the number two, viewcast, all one word, at gmail.com. All right, that's well, it, Mike.
1: That's it. You know, More information on the original and advanced emergency medicine boot camps, the emergency medicine and acute care course. We still have a couple of those coming up this year in cool locations. I think New York City's coming up, is that right? NYC, right? Yep. Or any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That's www.ccme.org, www.ccme.org.
0: All right. Well, new and upcoming courses this year. So many fun things. And we have our boot camp, as we mentioned, coming up in July, the 25th through the 28th. Our procedures and ultrasound and farm course two days before the camp. They're still open. So check our website for more information, ccme.org.
1: Yeah, spots run out on those pre-camp sessions just because you want to keep the um, instructor to person ratio, uh, low and manageable, so you get really good learning out of that. So so you're not going to want to you know, uh, miss out on that sign up in too late and see that you were kind of like just, if you just signed up a day earlier, you could have made it into that course. Thanks for listening and attending this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple Attitudes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency, and it'll come right up ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get some two-view goodness. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, you want to see my fetching Hawaiian shirt that I'm wearing for the summer, you want to see that nice guitar in the background of Martha's uh, image here, then search for Center for Medical Education on YouTube or even just go to like ccmelive.org. That points to that. So ccme.org is our Home website, csamielive.org goes to the YouTube. You can catch the video version of our podcast. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to, including Bobby. That's <laughs> 2 Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
0: Thanks again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us at the Two View. Have a good day and a great shift.
1: Good dog.